And you, yes, you have been blessed by the eternal glory of the universe because you are listening to the Green Majority radio program, and it is just audible chocolate for all of your, I don't know, caloric needs. There you go. We are on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Shove that in your pipe and light it up. Your local community radio station may also be picking us up or the Harbinger Media Network podcast platforms. My name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And my legal name is Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. And that is also conveniently what my friends call me. So that's what you can call me too, listeners. Thanks for joining us today. And the writhing pile of demons that is this early November is beginning to shriek. This is the season of the rising of the dead. Really? Yeah. Stefan will be interviewing Mr. Andrew Leach. Professor Andrew Leach, in fact. The coveted vocal tones of Mr. Professor Andrew Leach. Yes. They will be discussing I do not know what. We'll be discussing his new book, Between Doom and Denial, which basically takes on different myths or half-truths about the climate change and the climate transition that you hear often in Canada. That uh, and so It's pretty wide-ranging. I learned a lot. Stefan's left hand is very attractive. He could be a left-hand model. Thank you. He could place that left hand on my right thigh at any point in time. And we're going to do some news, climate news. Um, I think around 8,000 people have been killed, Palestinians have been killed so far since October 7th. And a lot of those are children. And people are still being fired for supporting Palestine. Some news now, climate news. So the United Auto Workers have reached a deal with General Motors, which ends their strike. So they did a bunch of targeted strikes and they believe they have now squeezed every last dime out of General Motors. And it also includes stuff like, you know, they have to get the union support to even close a plant. The, 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 they're, they're also fighting what they're calling the underclass, permanent underclass of temporary, less, uh, less paid workers. And so some people are getting as much as 89% pay increases. But those would be the ones who are already not getting very much at all. And Toyota which is not dealing with unionized workers, has decided to raise wages for their non-unionized workers, hopefully staving off them joining, I guess, the UAW. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how one of the wins here was to successfully get some agreements that future battery plants might also fall under their agreement. And one of the things that the UAW... uh, head of the UAW said when announcing this, which I think is really interesting and quite smart if the unions could pull it off, was he suggested that other unions join 
them in aligning with their end of contract at the same time as as this current contract. It's somewhere sometime in 2018, I believe. Sorry, in 2028, I believe. With the idea that if you could get more and more and more different types of labor successfully aligning their contracts, you set up the possibility and the ability for something closer to what you might see with a general strike. And what you could ask for then could sort of expand beyond even the nature of these individual contracts. But, you know, you could imagine pushing for government government changes for more generally pro-union, some different causes and calls that you might see across the union sectors for the government. And it would do a lot to actually, you know, collectively empower the unions themselves and the workers themselves and really labor movement in general to be able to call on much bigger concessions to be made across the country. If you could imagine, you know, like these were only a few strikes that they did on rotating basis. They didn't even end up having all their workers walk off at the same time. They just had a series of rotating strikes that had enough of an impact to sort of win the concessions that they wanted, along with these other things like, you know, gaining new access to potential battery plant workers to be part of the union as well. And the reason why Toyota is is doing this partially is because the obvious next step, if you want to see a electric and you know carbon zero shift, especially within the car manufacturing thing, the car manufacturing world, you need to unionize both Tesla and Toyota. And so you can really imagine that that's where the UAW is going to start focusing on now, is trying to get these other places to to sign on because. What you can't see and what we really don't want to see as environmentalists is the idea that as, as things move electric, the we we lose unionized jobs for ununionized jobs. And that's a big concern in the auto sector, but it's also a big concern within the power sector, which is why you've been seeing other pushes from other unions to try to, to try to begin to to build that out too. So a, it's a great. This is like a nice news story to have, which is the you know the, the power of, of of workers, you know, collective action getting the goods. But it's also a, sim- a symbol of how you could think more strategically, more generally as a union to to win even more concessions. I think what's exciting to me about this development and this win on the part of UAW is is yeah, it, it comes back to that just transition piece. That's obviously why we're talking about it. Um, not, not that talking about any union win um, isn't isn't worthy. It absolutely is because, like you said, it's sort of like collectively when when we see unions making good headway, it it, it results in in wins for um, all workers across the board in some way, shape, or form. Um, but this is fantastic because what this shows me and what this tells me is that regardless of how um, weak and unexciting. Uh, Bill C-50, the uh, Sustainable Jobs Act is, um, the work of a just transition is already happening and is already underway and is being driven um, by those from outside government, which is exactly what we need to see. Because I think what, what at least I am finally starting to internalize is that we're not going to get leadership from the government when it comes to a just transition, at least not as intensely and rigorously as we need. Um, so the fact that unions are out here really leading the way on this is, um, is, is, yeah, is, is good news is kind of buoying of the spirits at least, at least a little bit, um, especially in, in this kind of crunch time with, with, with C50, with the sustainable jobs act and trying to make it as ambitious as possible while understanding that it's, that it's designed to be 
weak and it's designed to allow industry to to get away with murder. Yeah. And it's interesting in the conversation uh, you'll hear in a little bit with Andrew, with Professor Andrew Leach. One of the conversations we have is, you know, his own concerns about the ability to policy your way into a just transition and the sort of limitations that face that a government faces in trying to you know make these kind of changes in in a uncertain world basically and i think that as you as you noted there the way to drastically increase the chances are that people aren't being left behind is to ensure that there are good union jobs across Canada in every industry, because that's the way to ensure that no one is being left behind even currently. You know, it's not like we're talking about, it's not like Canada has a economy right now that is not exploiting millions of workers. And we have to worry about the, the, the those who might lose their jobs exclusively from, you know, say the oil sands. But we live in a world where, Many, many, many Canadians, you know, we talked about the migrant rights previously and the way that they're exploited, but also, you know, everyday rank and file workers who are not unionized and don't have protections and are being exploited. And the more that we can create good jobs for everyone, the more good jobs there are for people to move to if, you know, if they are losing their work in the oil fields or something like that. And so... I think that strengthening the sort of labor and encouraging the labor movements here in Canada to you know, flex their muscles and, and do their best to grow is maybe one of the best ways that you can begin to prepare for uh, a transition just from a standpoint of ensuring that people are all have access to dignified work. Um, so Justin Trudeau has agreed to suspend carbon tax for three years on home heating oil in what just a few in like saskatchewan and the eastern provinces is that right no it's just the eastern provinces it's just the eastern provinces okay and the the conservatives are trying to sort of dunk on that being like see it's going to help it's going to reduce inflation and so so the carbon they're they're suggesting that it's uh, proof that the carbon tax is bad for the economy because it uh, increases inflation. Um, and they're quoting the Bank of Canada manager, the the head of the Bank of Canada, as being like, "This will, you know, reduce inflation by a certain amount." But in fact, the the Bank of Canada guy also said like, "This would only be for one year." So for the for the, for the lifetime, if you if you ask the entire at uh, tax for the lifetime uh forever it will only in it will only decrease inflation for one year so it's really not it's not effectively decreasing inflation because it would be a very temporary thing well and the percentage was something like 0. 0.15 0.15 yeah. 1.5 percent so i guess so what are they doing here they're, they're 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 afraid that people won't be able won't be able to heat their homes they're trying to make they're trying to make people's uh staying warm in the winter in atlantic canada more affordable less less expensive by by suspending this carbon tax right that's the yeah that's I mean, the idea yeah basically i mean they which which is opens up such a can of worms like there are so many better ways to have if that was your big concern there are so many better ways of doing this than to do this like this is the kind of thing that makes people a start asking why it's this specific place in a specific time instead of hundreds of other ways that you could have helped these people. But to like begin to start 
I can't. I've never. I can't even think of another government which inputted a, which would put in a policy and then begin to chip away at it even before it has any real chance to have a real effect. Mm. Like it's a nonsense decision on their part. And one of the reasons why this is so important in Atlantic Canada is because Atlantic Canada just lacks. Um, as we've discussed with folks on the show, uh, I think it was last year, a lot of homes in Atlanta Canada need desperately to be insulated and to have significant upgrades uh, to them. And so you can imagine that they could have done so many other ways to reduce heating costs in Atlanta Canada that would have provided long-term help that would not have just sort of been like, here's a couple hundred dollars, vote for us next time kind of situation, and that would not have brought in the rest of the concept of a uh, carbon tax into question, which is exactly what this has done. You know, Saskatchewan, since I believe, has said that they're not going to collect it, which would be illegal, but they're saying they won't do it. Um, other places have been like, well, what about the rest of Canada? Or what about this other issue that I care about that should reduce it, remove it? And it's just this truly own goal on their part to weaken a a bill that they brought instead of finding other ways to sort of tackle this issue, you know, like our last, last week conversation with, uh, or a recent conversation we had with the David Suzuki, Suzuki, yeah, with Stephen Thomas from the David Suzuki foundation talks about how there are many ways to address, you know, heat, poverty, uh, energy poverty. And this goes specifically to heating oil, but like Support people getting heat pumps and reduce energy costs, and you'll have the same impact and reduce climate emissions or carbon emissions. And so it just feels like this is a sort of a tack-on idea to buy to make some people who are have liberal liberal MPs in Atlanta, Canada, happy with them. And it did, they really does not feel like they thought this one through. And I don't know. It's it's somewhat depressing that they're seemingly laying the foundation for the destruction of their own thing which is really the only thing they've really done on climate in a significant fashion you know beyond some of these setups they've done with regulations that they haven't really brought into any significant impact and so yeah i mean it's just it's kind of an impressive own goal for a government that has been pretty good at own goals already i remember i was i was talking with colleagues about it and like somebody put forward the point that like oh well like it could have been way worse and it's like yeah yeah it could have been for sure 100 they could have <laughs> it could have been it could have been across the board this like freeze on the tax or whatever but but no exactly what what this effectively does is legitimizes the argument that the carbon tax is expensive and the carbon taxes is is making um heating people's homes and an, an insurmountable feat when we know that that's not really the case, like you said, it's it's a couple hundred dollars. And I understand for listeners who are like, hey, a couple hundred dollars is a couple hundred dollars. It's like, yeah, 100 percent. That's legitimate. But then to me, the solution is what Stefan suggested, which is that like, OK, let's let's do deep retrofits for those homes on on the public dollar. You know what I mean? Like that's that's what the government should be funding is is in these areas in which. Um, homes need need drastic overhauls in terms of of insulation, in terms of um, uh, it, installing things like new windows and new doors to ensure that seals are a little bit tighter and you're not just like losing mass quantities of of um, 
of uh, warm air. And, um, and then, yeah, there's, there's a large portion of the Atlantic region, maybe not a large portion, but a portion of the Atlantic region that is still either heated, uh, via oil. Um, in some, in some cases I've like, I've lived in homes on the East coast that are still heated primarily by wood stoves. So, um, there, there are a million other solutions that, that yes, would have cost public dollars, but bear with me here. Um, some of those public dollars would have been offset by this carbon tax. So, so you could have been pulling from that collective fund in order to sort of build into a, um, I don't know, a, a positive cycle um, resulting from from a carbon tax as opposed to this freeze, which really all it does is it saves negligible amounts of money for folks um, and doesn't doesn't result in in anything resembling um, a, an, an overhaul or a retrofit and just kind of besmirches the idea of a carbon tax, which is incredibly disappointing. And again, I don't think it's actually going to win them win them uh, many favors. Um, it, it like the Atlantic region already largely votes liberal. I think this is one of those things where it's like, God, you're you're throwing you're throwing money at people to buy votes that you in all likelihood already have like i don't i don't understand the political calculus here anyway uh it, it's yeah in, in addition to 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 the freeze on the tax like there was um there was there's some money that's now available for folks for um heat pumps which is great so hopefully you'll see some people getting some heat pumps installed um as a result of this announcement that was made um especially i believe it is specifically oriented at those who are moving away from heating oil um, so, so not all bad, um, but still doesn't help us out in terms of legitimizing the carbon tax, especially when we're, I don't know, going to go into an election season when all the conservatives are going to harp on is, is how evil and how bad a price on carbon and a carbon tax is. So it, the it, liberals need to freaking help themselves at this point. I don't understand. There's any number of ways you could do this and they just chose the most, direct way to give a win to the conservative party it's at this point it kind of feels like liberals want our next prime minister to be polyev right like that's how it feels at this point exactly and it's like girl i kind of get it like i'm burnt out too y'all probably need a rest <laughs> for a couple of years sure maybe that's this but it's it's gonna be a rough couple of years don't do this to us yeah exactly <laughs> You can take a break. You guys can leave. All of you can leave. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. If you're tired, if you don't want to run again, great. Yeah. Recruit some young upstart to come run in your place. Ferry in, ferry in some new blood. Ferry in some fresh <laughs> enthusiasm. There's a way to go about this that doesn't involve just completely laying down and letting the poly of conservatives steamroll us. I say us as though I'm aligned with the party. I'm not. I'm just yeah. saying. Um. Finally, Kingston. This is the last thing I'll say, I guess. The city of Kingston has has voted, their council members have, have voted to officially have blanket support for all new electricity projects except for fossil fuel ones. So they've decided, that they, they felt the need to say, we are not accepting fossil fuel projects, even though they don't think they will be forced to have them. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the Ford government has been trying to push these these plants on a number of communities. I believe Kingston was one of the communities that recently voted against uh, having one. And so I imagine this is probably some type of attempt to be like, look, you, we are pro-energy. We want more energy to come onto the grid, which, you know, again, people we need, especially as you see some of the loss of other energy coming out. 
so and so the conversation has to be what do you take and so they like i mean commendable that their answer is we will take any type of renewables and that is fine it just should not be any of these gas plants that are that are being pushed by the ford government and so i mean we'll we'll see we'll see and hopefully that that will inspire some change but the ford government does not have a great history of listening to municipalities as someone who has lived in toronto the last four years uh can say and so we'll find out but uh I mean, yeah, I mean, the Ford government has shown with their MZOs and everything else that they basically think they can do whatever they want. And so I'm a little not I'm not I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to say I'm not optimistic that this will uh, prevent them from having any have to deal with uh, any gas plants or or things. But I commend them for their efforts. And it is always good to re to try to find new ways to encourage, you know, renewable and, and carbon and free energy. Yeah, snaps for Kingston. We'll check in on you in a couple of years, see how that's going. But like vibes, guys. Hopefully, hopefully, other, um, especially Ontarian cities, fall in line here. Um, I'm looking at you, London. I'm looking at you, Ottawa. Mostly just because those are the cities that I am most familiar with and most angry at most days. And we will go to a music break and come back with Stefan's interview with Professor Andrew Leach about his new book, The Madman's Middle Way. I mean, it's it's called Between Doom and Denial. Oh, sorry. I thought he was a uh, Tibetan Buddhist. He's an Albertan energy professor? Uh, he's an environmental economist. Oh, wow. An oxymoron. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts are, and also now with the Harbinger Media Network. If you haven't heard of them, check them out. I am here, as previewed earlier on the show, with Dr. Andrew Leach, who is an energy and environmental economist and is a professor at the University of Alberta, and also 
the author of Between Doom and Denial, which is out now and which will be the subject, I would say mostly, of this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So by way of introduction, maybe you can tell us how you sort of approach the climate movement. You know, like, how did you get into it? So what's your backstory? What is my backstory? So I started working as an economist, or I guess studying as an economist, thinking mostly about labor and econometrics and computational methods. And then really my, even though I'd always been interested in the environment, I never really linked it that much to my grad school work. And then one day my professor at the time or my supervisor pretty literally threw a book at me. It happened to be Bill Nordhaus's book. And as I was walking past his office, he sort of threw it at me and said, go read this and tell me what you can do better. And within two days from then, and I wouldn't say that I succeeded in doing things better than Nordhaus necessarily, but uh, I went from working on labor economics questions to back to working on environment and climate change questions. And I've pretty much been in the space one way or another ever since. So energy, oil sands, pipelines, climate, et cetera, really since 2000 and oh, I'll call it 2001. Did you read the book in those two days? Oh, Yes. Okay. All yeah, right. I kind of, I kind of de devoured it once I got a handle on it because it was really combining a bunch of my interests. It was combining climate change and macroeconomics and computational work, and and so you know once I got a handle, once I got a handle on it, I devoured it. I really enjoyed it, and yeah, I, I at that point kind of then started to think about the harder question, which was what could I do in that space? Right. For sure. And so. I mean, actually, I'm curious, what, what, did, what did you end up doing before we get into the book? Yeah, so I did two, two major changes to Nordhaus's work. So one of them, if you know that work at all, it's, a, it's what we call in economics a representative agent model. So it kind of ignores the fact that we have people who have different ages, different demographics, different incomes, different, et cetera, just like what happens to this representative human. So my, my first chapter was doing what happens if we start to think just very simply about age cohorts. So what does climate change policy look like in terms of a welfare measure across age cohorts? And, and it's really the, the problem we see right now, that most people alive at any point in time don't live long enough to feel the full benefits of action on climate change. It's that inter, trying to capture that inter, intergenerational aspect or even multi-generational aspect of the problem. And then the second part was dealing kind of again with timelines, but dealing with uncertainty in some of these models and starting to think, okay, what, how do we set policy in an environment where we don't know and where we're still learning about the science of climate change and how severe the impacts of particular emissions today would be? Or you might think of, you know, without knowing what the social cost of carbon is and how those estimates are going to evolve, how do we set policy today? Sweet. I'm probably so, better at explaining it now of, than I was then. <laughs> I mean, I personally think that you can tell how far someone is on their PhD about how quickly they can explain it to you. Like early on, it takes about a day and a half. And then by the end of it, they've got the three lines and they're good at it. So, I mean, yeah. this this tracks. Thank you for adding to my 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 theory. Um, I guess so, so to shifting on to the book, because I and I mean, we could spend hours talking about some of your history between then and now. I know you, you know, worked on on some carbon tax proposals with the Alberta NDP at one point and have been involved yeah. in a lot of other work. But I do want to spend uh, as much as I can talking about the book that's just released. And so can you tell us what the impetus was to write the book in the first place? So the impetus was very simple. It was Chris Reagan at the Maxwell School of Public Policy saying, would you like to do a lecture series? And 
And I said, yes. And he said, well, then you have to write a book. And I said, oh, and when do I have to write this book for? And he said, well, the lectures are next fall, which means that the book is due some point in the summer. So I had 11 months to figure out what to write a book about, essentially, and finish it. And so at that point, I mean, it's it's much clearer now in hindsight than it was at the time, but it was kind of, what do I want to tell Canadians about climate change? And the storyline that I came to was, you know, there, there are these things that we tell ourselves that are really, I started off with the title was Little Lies We Tell Ourselves About Climate Change. And then it was like, well, half truths and, you know, easy sound bites. And then Ken White said, well, you need a better title than that. So that's where he came up with between doom and denial because little lies, easy sound bites, and half truths about climate change didn't sound that interesting. And so, yeah, it was really a matter of just picking which of the five or six things that, you know, everybody that works in this space has heard them like a dozen times or a hundred times, which of those could I take on in book form and then make it translate pretty well for a lecture. Awesome. And so why don't you just sort of take us through high level the the argument of the book? Sure. So I think the argument of the book is, to put it in a nutshell, it's that action on climate change and the, the physics of climate change and the policy problem of climate change just is not as simple as we tell ourselves it is. So the lines that I take on in the book start with, you know, climate change won't be that bad, we can adapt. So think of a typical Bjorn Lomborg argument, we're better spending our money on reinforcements to prevent sea level rise than we are on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then the next piece that I take on is, again, I, I pick up on Joe Oliver, the, the head of the chapter, but, you know, Canada is a cold country. We won't, uh, climate change won't be that bad for us. We should just not deal with it. We're 2% of global emissions. And so nothing we do will matter. And And so that's kind of the first, the front end of the book is these arguments say roughly against mitigation. I would classify those, those three fitting in there. And then there's a couple about, you know, what happens as the world acts on climate change. So I, I talk a lot about the solar power revolution in a chapter called the sun doesn't shine at night. I talk about the implications of the, the implications of world action on climate change on our oil industry. And then the last one, which I think is a, exists as a real change of pace in the book in some ways, but I, I go a little bit the other way to say, you know, be careful. We also have these easy sound bites that advocates use. And one of them is, well, don't worry about the oil and gas workers. We can plan a just transition. And the the six chapters kind of, I, I think of them as almost standing on their own. They're not really linked together. They were designed for three lectures. So I'm kind of picking one or two of them for each lecture. So there, I wouldn't say there's a strong theme going through the book, except for, you know, uh, maybe a, a cocktail party survival guide for easy climate change sound bites. Nice. And so let's let's open up a couple of those because I'm interested. I would love sure. to hear a little bit more about the cold climate in Canada thing, because it's you can sort of see how it makes like, again, cocktail sense. You're right. Like, hey, it's normally cold here. It's two degrees warmer. Won't that just be like middle of the United States? That sounds fine. Is a compelling enough argument that you could imagine people sort of falling for it in a, in a basic sense. But of course, it's so much more complicated than that. Can, so can you sort of deconstruct why we should not fall for that? Sure. I mean, I think that's pro it's probably my favorite chapter in the book because it's the one that I learned a lot about economics while writing it. And, you know, the the a lot of the points in the book turn on this idea, kind of a Daniel Kahneman thing. We ask ourselves a hard question and then we turn to a slightly different question that gives us a, a more convenient answer. And it turns out that a lot of this cold country stuff fits well into that category because essentially, as you framed it, the analysis that we tend to use on climate change is 
a little bit of what you just painted, which is if, you know, Southern Ontario starts to look like the U.S. Midwest, how bad is that? But it's even a little more subtle than that, is that we tend to use rely on a lot of studies that ask, how has Canada done in a historically warmer than average year? And so, you know, you have a year where it's sunnier, a year where it's warmer, you get higher agricultural yields, maybe you get more tourism spending, all of those things that tend to boost GDP in a given year, and take that and use it as a proxy for how we'll do under a climate-changed world. And you know, and, and these are not, you know, fly-by-night studies by any stretch of the imagination. These are studies that are published in some of the top scientific journals in the world that reach conclusions that say Canada in a warmer world will benefit. And so what I take on in the chapter is to say, well, actually what these studies, you know, you never want to be a guy on the internet saying, well, actually, but here I am. Uh, but actually with the, the question that these that these studies are asking isn't quite how will we do on climate change? It's how would we do if we had a warmer than average year, but in a vacuum? And climate change is a series of warmer years. And so that opens up things, permafrost melting, increased wildfire risk, drought on the prairies, loss of the water column, changes in uh, overall weather patterns, et cetera, the heat domes, this sort of thing, and the extreme heat events that happen because we have this sustained and building warming over time that you wouldn't see in that warmer than average year. So I think there's kind of a neat little statistical insight that fits well with the theme of the book there. That, And then the, the last bit, and I know I'm going on a little bit long on this, but the last part of that chapter is to say, remember that we don't exist in a vacuum. So if you look at Canada and say, like, basically what those studies do is say, well, if it's warmer in Canada, are we happy? As opposed to, are we happier with a warmer Canada in a warmer world? And so all of those impacts that destabilize the world, the hunger effects, the drought effects, et cetera, all flash back upon us. And none of those are accounted for in those studies because they don't happen in one warmer than average year in Canada. They happen when we have sustained warming over decades on a global scale. Yeah. And and I'm glad that you included the global aspect of it too, because of course, once you think about it a little bit longer, you start realizing how much of our food we rely on in places where two degrees warming even more would be devastating, right? Like yes. it's okay, we're the Midwest, but we're getting a lot of food from Florida, which two degrees warming is a nightmare. Yes. And, you know, certainly all of the geopolitical effects that come with that climate shock. So it's not just, again, we don't get our food, but the regions that grow that food come into a big, you know, demographic economic shock. And the one that I think is is interesting, and I confess I probably hadn't thought about it as much as I probably should have in climate change was, you know, we think about, okay, we can migrate, we can move the crops, we can change our agricultural behavior, but we can't move the fish in the ocean. And so those societies that rely a lot on fisheries, including many regions of Canada that rely on cold water fisheries, et cetera, the changes in the fishery are much more difficult to adapt to than even maybe changes on land. Oh, yeah, for sure. And not to mention the fact that some of the ways that we've even imagined cooling the earth, you know, with aerosols and stuff like that, does nothing to deal with the acidic oceans, which is only going to devastate fish stocks further, right? Exactly. Yeah. So before we get into some of the, the, the secondary part of the book, I'm curious, out of the other sort of little pernicious 
half lies that come from the sort of conservative side of things. What's the one that you see either most often that you feel like is most important to take down or the one that you learned something that was interesting to you? You know, I, I mean, I live in Alberta, so the one I hear most often is the the one that I take on about uh, the world's always going to use oil and gas. And so I had fun last week presenting on that in Calgary. And so I think that was maybe the one that, that gave me the most pause to really think through, you know, how do we deal with the projections that are out there? What are we essentially betting on? Like, fundamentally, do I think... You know, if you look at the World Energy Outlook projections that were out last week, you know, which one of those three do we think is the most plausible set of future circumstances, right? Do we think the world is going to get its act together and drive to net zero by 2050? Do we think the world is going to carry on as is? And what does that mean for, among other things, our domestic oil industry? And then, you know, beyond that also, which one of these is the oil industry betting on? And so I think the most interesting thing in the in the book was going into some of the institutional forecasts from, you know, ExxonMobil or OPEC or others and seeing, okay, they're, it's not only that they're betting on inaction on climate change, they're very explicit about it. Like, here's our projection. This is not consistent with a two degree C world. Like they spell it out. And I think that was maybe the, I hadn't really spent enough time in the text of those outlooks. I spent a lot of time with the data, but I never spent enough time in the text to say, oh yeah, they like, they li literally just say, this is a scenario that's us not meeting climate change goals. And that's our our view of the future. So I think that was maybe the the one that I was most interested in other than the Canada's a cold country chapter. Right. That makes sense. And so, man, I, I find that fascinating, right? The If you want to know exactly how the oil industry is thinking, just sort of go to their financial records, right? The financial records are where they are telling their investors what they think is going to happen. And that to me is where you sort of get the most straight talk in terms of their own personal predictions. But 100%. Given, so from where you are and from sort of your you know history of being in your own space, I'm curious, like, what's, what do you think? Like where, if you get project the next 50 years, like what do you think we do? Where's our, where's our path? Do you think that we're on or that we might get to? So, I'm probably, I'm pretty pessimistic on policy, I think at this point, and very optimistic on technology. And there's a, there's a question in the, I think it was in, yeah, it was in Montreal, in uh, Calgary that I think Chris Reagan asked actually about, you know, if you were a techno-optimist, how would you feel about things like carbon capture and storage, nuclear power? I said, well, if I'm a techno-optimist, I'm worried about the things that are growing really quickly right now, or that the costs are declining really quickly, EVs, solar, wind, batteries, electrolyzers, et cetera. And, you know, maybe heat pumps fits in that conversation too, but that, you know, the, we're past the point where there's kind of a business as usual or business as before, where we're all going to just want to go back, even if there were no government policy push, so we'd all go back to what we we're doing before. And I feel like, you know, whether it's solar in Alberta or to some degree electric vehicles, you know, as we, we sit here and think, you know, what works for us in Canada or what do we think works for us, right? And we're missing some of where the world is heading on these things. So I think I'm I'm really optimistic about, you know, where we are in terms of even with limited policy push, the progress of some of these clean technologies is just outstripping anything we would have imagined five or seven years ago, or even two or three years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how quickly we've moved from the concept that wind and solar are too expensive to they are now cheaper in most places than even keeping coal online, right? Like it's just- yeah, it, it, it's at this point, it's almost as if 
the if it was just a pure technology problem, we'd be already moving forward to it. And in some ways, it's the social infrastructure that's holding us back more than the physical infrastructure outside of, I would say, there's a lot of work to be done on transmission lines. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the things that I bring up a little bit in one of the chapters of the book is to say, you know, our problem isn't that solar has limitations. Our problem is that solar has limitations in Alberta or in the prairies, right? And and so we're, we're used to this world where whether it's Quebec Hydro, Ontario Nuclear, et cetera, Alberta Gas, that we have these really cheap energy sources that drive our economy. And now all of a sudden you've got this, you know, the cheapest energy we've ever made essentially. And it's like, well, but it doesn't work that well in the Northern Prairies. That's a real problem, right? That's That's not a... You know, that's not something you say, oh, well, to it's I can put, you know, three, four cent a kilowatt hour battery backed up power anywhere in the world other than kind of the northern latitudes or deep southern latitudes. That's a big problem for the northern and southern latitudes. It's not a like, you know, problem with solar power. And so I think that I try to make that point of we should be more worried about that maybe than we are. Right. That makes sense. So one more question on this side of things before I, I flip to some of the other questions, which is. I'd be curious to know your thoughts about the idea of a carbon bubble. You know, like, do you believe that there we are in a carbon bubble and do you think it will burst at some point or will it be more of like a phase decline? I think, I, I, I mean, the idea that we're building stuff now that, you know, whether it's a strand that asks that question that we're sort of over betting. I think I make that point in the book that there's a lot of oil and gas asset and oil and gas investment right now that is probably built on the premise of a world that uses more oil and gas than we will eventually use. But again, I, I don't think you can separate that from just about any other major industry. So, you know, are we all buying tech devices right now that will we won't use, you know, three years from now that we think are changing, you know, what's our BlackBerry? What's our, you know, iPod shuffle or whatever? But we'd never talk about having it. Well, I guess we would talk about having a tech bubble. But, you know, so I I don't I don't think there's a systematic overvaluation of hydrocarbon, whether it's investments or whatever. And I think you see some some sense of shareholders voting with their feet already. Right. What are oil and gas companies doing? They're doing share buybacks and dividends and they're not plowing those profits back into new oil and gas development. So I think there's a little bit of voting with their feet already, even from the companies or from the shareholders themselves. Right. Okay. And so, I mean, that sort of brings us to the, this question of a, of a just transition and what happens when we move off it. And obviously, your, your sort of take from what I can understand is, is that people will suffer in some ways. So the folks that are in these industries will be harmed by this. And so can you elaborate on your, on your thoughts there? <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I guess that is kind of the upshot of the argument. But I think the biggest part that I'm trying to communicate is if you're in government, don't pretend you can do things you can't. So... You know, when you read some of the work that's done on the so-called kind of just transitions plans, and this was something that we confronted in Alberta and, and sort of, you know, there's almost a little pat on the head. Well, don't worry, we'll come up with a plan and we'll come up with some new things for you to do and we'll do some job retraining, et cetera. But I think the reality, even on the ground in Alberta during the coal phase out, was that things moved very quickly and in a direction that nobody would have predicted. And that was a relatively small, like 2,000 people, you know, half dozen facilities, et cetera, and, you know, a uh, half dozen towns that are really deeply impacted by this. And you put all the resources of the Alberta government, the federal government to bear on it. 
and everybody who's really ready for the transition to happen in 2026 or 2027 is done by 2024. And I think that's the piece that, you know, a lot of the thinking around what we call just transition plans has sort of evolved from, you know, industries that are in decline, industries that are currently being heavily supported by government, industries that are heavily unionized, and where I can sit and maybe the industries that are owned by a single or a, a few corporations, so I can take people and move them around and make sure that I sort of smoothly transition everybody out of their current jobs and into something new or into retirement or or what have you. But thinking about, well, how would that work in an oil and gas industry, even the upstream side where you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees today, and there are people who are talking about, oh, yeah, sure, we can just do this in like five to seven years, 15 years, what have you. You just cannot be that precise with government planning. And, you know, one of the other lessons from the Alberta coal phase out is it's hard to keep plants open, right? So if you said to you know, any business, I'm going to force this business to close. Like, you know, we have bike stores in Edmonton closed as a result of our new light rail construction. Well, the moment that that closure was announced, their best mechanics were looking for other jobs, of course, right? Their salespeople aren't going to hang around and wait for the store to close before they start looking for another job. So that store becomes really hard to staff in the last little while before, you know, I'm sure is not my my own but the same thing was true of the coal mines that once you say this is this mine is closing at some point you know housing values in the town drop the people want to find other employment and so and you know the operators have a hard time hiring someone would you want to go to work for a facility like you're fresh out of school one of my students says well i'm going to go and work for you know the xyz coal mine that's going to close in two years i might say are you sure Right. Like maybe you'll gain some good experience, but it's got a really, you know, there, there's no long term in that. And so I think that kind of hubris that we can pick out who's going where and start kind of moving people around like they're on a chessboard. It's the kind of thing that normally labor would accuse economists of doing. And in this case, it's kind of the labor left in a way that says, oh, yeah, no, 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 don't worry, we can do it. And and I just don't think it's it's reasonable. And so I'm curious how would you, you know, like, it, let's, we presume, and I think it's fair to assume that people, A, want to get off oil and gas, and B, don't want to create another collapse of an industry that leaves people to to wander yeah. in the desert. And so, like, what would you, as a an economist and as a person who sort of cares about this stuff, suggest that we try to do to at least soften the blow as much as possible? So I think I'd start maybe before that and say, do we think this is something that is happening because of global oil markets? So do we think what's going to happen is the world's going to use less oil or be willing to pay less for it? And so this is an industry that's looking for a way to shut down and that we're just trying to soften that blow. Or is it something that left to its own devices, this is going to be a booming industry and we, through our choices of policy, are going to determine that we in Canada are not going to produce as much oil or we are going to actively drive this industry down. And I think people have avoided that conversation a little bit, right? They're sort of, well, don't worry, I look at the IEA scenarios and those price drops and the production drops and, and that's all going to happen and we just have to adapt to it. But in the book, I argue that's neither of those things is given, right? The world may not act as we think. And if it does, you know, if everybody is assured that the price is going to drop, guess what's going to happen? Nobody's going to invest 
oil prices are actually going to be higher than they would otherwise be. And all of these things make your life more challenging because you're trying to, if you're trying as the government to keep people from taking a job in a really booming industry with high oil prices, that's going to be hard. So, you know, as an economist, the first thing I do is start back and say, what do we, what are we preparing? What do we think we're preparing for? And then what are some of the alternatives to that? So show me a declining oil industry with a high oil price scenario. Show me a really rapid drop in oil prices and what you think that looks like in this industry. And then, okay, what do we learn about labor dynamics across the country for those workers? And how can we, you know, put in place the programs that cushion those, not like getting into, I know what I'm going to do with the employees from Suncor's facility in this town at this time, but how can we encourage the migration, the retraining, all of these sorts of things that exist? And then I think the the other piece of that is thinking about the towns. And so the, you know, when, when I talk about this, I think, you know, we often lose sight of the fact that, you know, Fort McMurray isn't just a bunch of fly in, fly out people in work camps. There's a, you know, medium-sized city in Alberta there where there are people who have lived in Fort McMurray for multiple generations that have never worked in oil and gas. Right? They operate the sandwich shop, they're nurses, they're doctors, they're teachers, they're whatever, the same as in any other town. And so I think it's, you know, what is the realistic plan for them? And, you know, avoid the really easy stuff like, well, there's going to be jobs in solar. And I'm like, well, there'll be jobs in solar in Lethbridge, but that's eight hours away or 10, like that's a, you know, you would not look at if we were in Ottawa, and there was a tech company shutting down, you wouldn't pat someone on the head and say, but don't worry, there are jobs in the auto industry in Windsor. You know, it, it wouldn't seem like a, a transition plan. So I think you have to think about what do those communities look like in the near term and then what is, and not kid ourselves about what we can create in those communities in the long term. And so the last thing, and I know this is a long answer too, but I talk about in the book, you know, my family is all from Miramichi, New Brunswick. And both my parents grew up there and that was a mill town, a lumber town. My grandfather's worked in the, in the woods and the lumber camps and you know, that area, when the mills shut down, the economic impact was massive. And, and right now, what do you see in, in that area, right? Initially it was the firearms registry. It was the Phoenix pay system. You have a lot of government build in that, but you know, I get, I take offense when people say, well, you know, we can create new industries that will replace the oil and gas industries in these in these small towns, small resort towns. I say, well, if you can do that, like do it now. Right. There are lots of Canadian resource towns that could desperately use a booming new industry. If you think you can do that, you don't have to wait for the oil and gas industry to shut down to do it. You, there's a lot of people who would like to stay closer to home in Eastern Canada and work closer to home. There's a lot of people, you know, in other towns in Alberta, there's Hannah where the coal mine uh, shut down, for example, let's do it there now. But I think it's easy to talk about when it's like sort of as a, as a means to say, don't worry too much about the costs of the climate policy. It's harder when you actually get down to it and say, okay, where are these? Like, where is the record of us doing this? Yeah, that's interesting, especially, you know, as you said, so much of the folks who end up in, in the oceans come from Alberta, come from Atlantic Canada. And so, it, like, it, where do you, in, the idea you invest in Alberta, even to keep the people there, when maybe they'd be much happier back back home, is is a perfectly, like, interesting question, right? Like, wh where do you invest yeah. and why do you invest is, a, is an open question. 
but I think just more important, like if we thought that, you know, if we had this great record of government investments creating boom towns equivalent to Fort McMurray, wherever we wanted to put them, you know, then, okay, great, but show me where that is, right? It it fundamentally does not exist. You can't make that much water run uphill as a government. And I think that's like the, the other flavor of the book is reminding people that, you know, right now the average oil and gas worker in Alberta earns like two to three times the average worker in Canada. And so if you're going to say to that and, and the, the government take out of this industry, whether it's provincial or federal is huge. So if you're going to say, okay, now I'm going to take the government and I want to take those workers and I'm going to find something else for them to do driven by government investment, but I've also taken a big hit on my government revenues, then making that math work in a way that sort of to quote the the natural resources minister's briefing binder leaves no person and no region behind. I think that's just, that's just not going to happen. You, there's no, the math doesn't work. That doesn't mean we shouldn't provide the supports. And, and, you know, I think we do have way more experience now in providing sort of that broad based emergency support that we had than we had before. We watched our whole economy do it and keep a whole basically a whole country from falling into collapse. And so, you know, I think we have the capability and we have the people who are experts in designing that sort of thing, but we just couldn't, shouldn't kid ourselves that we can kind of move people around on a spreadsheet and make everything okay. Right. So it sort of sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that your take on this is is that we should, in some ways, either try now to to do the work to tr- to provide new transition offerings, or in some ways hold back and wait until we sort of see where the chess pieces are moving more. Is that well, accurate, or is there a third? Option? I, I think it's more decentralized than that. I think it's hmm. it's probably accepting the fact that you know, this is this is not a local industry in a local place, right? This isn't 2,000 people. It's not even, you know, 20,000 people in the cod fishery. This is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people spread throughout the country. And so, you know, I, I use the analog of the manufacturing industry in Ontario in the, in the 2000s when, you know, a combination of labor competition, exchange rates, different interests on the part of workers, et cetera, leads to you know, a declining viability of the manufacturing sector. But we didn't see government saying, well, okay, we're going to take these people here. I'm going to put them over here. We didn't see government saying, well, I mean, we had to help the, the auto industry, the big, big auto plants. But we certainly didn't see anybody coming out and saying, you know, we will give you, we will, we can find you a better job than you have right now and trying to sort of actively manage the decline. We found governments, you know, filling the holes when they could and, and helping communities we saw the oil and gas boom actually attract a lot of those people that ended up unemployed in Ontario in the shutdown pull that pull into Alberta was significant so i think the question is yeah not can we kind of design an industry but that overall emphasis on productivity right what can we do to make sure that our economy has the strength to absorb the potential consequences of a downturn in in oil and gas and when we're designing our policies, you know, don't sit in the room and say, but don't worry, they'll be fine. Remember that you're probably not going to be to identify who's someone that's an energy transition casualty, who's someone that is just a churn in the economy, et cetera. And, and I think this, it really is that pushback against we can manage this. It's like, you know, we can we can move our chess pieces around on a board and be fine. It's like put in the broad support programs 
put in the, the retraining options, make sure that people are discussing this and, and having these conversations, but don't imagine that you can kind of pick people up and move them around on the board and make everybody fine. Right. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. And so second last question, which is, mm -hmm. I, I, one question I always ask people who've written a book, because I find cause my favorite question is you have to do so much research to write a <clears> book <throat> that there's always a thing or two you come across that sort of sticks in your brain and you talk about it forever. And I'm curious yep. if there's one of those that you haven't mentioned already. Well, as you mentioned research, I should mention two people, Vivian Allison and Jimmy Beltran, who did all a lot of the research. Their students are just graduated from the Max Bell School at McGill, who did a whole bunch of, of research for me. So I shouldn't take credit for all of the research in the, in the book. You know, the thing that I think probably stuck with me, the chapter that stuck with me the most was the wildfire stuff. And, you know, reading fire weather and thinking about, you know, of course, writing it this past summer and spring and summer when there was such a panic on on wildfires. I think that's the the thought that, that stuck with me and reading about Lytton, B.C. and going back to that coverage and thinking about, you know, what does our world look like? A few years down the road. And, you know, I remember when the McMurray fire was had happened a, a few years ago and thinking, like, is this our new reality? And then we got a reprieve from it for a couple of years. And then we had another year with a lot of smoke and then a reprieve for a couple of years. Now we got it again. And so it it seems, you know, obviously very compelling that this is something that is incredibly hard to adapt to. And this is, you know, incredibly disruptive. So I think the wildfire sticks in my memory more than probably anything else. Yeah, fair. I mean, when it's on your doorstep and or making you cough the moment you walk outside, it's sort of hard to hard to ignore in a pretty yeah. direct way. Great. Okay. Well, so A, thank you so much. But before I do a final readout, how can folks find this book or listen to these lectures if you have not given them all yet? Yeah, so Sutherland House, uh, Toronto is uh, the publisher and they're doing direct sales. Uh, books are available pretty much anywhere that that you normally get books. There's audio there's sorry, Ebooks available again from all of the major sellers, from Apple, from Google Books, from Amazon or Amazon and Indigo. And the McGill lectures, just Google McGill Max Bell lectures, and you'll find all three of them available on live stream. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been Andrew Leach, who is an energy and environment economist and a professor at the University of Alberta, also the author of Between Doom and Denial, which is out now, and you can go purchase it. Thank you so much, Andrew, and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much.